students who are learning more about God's Word to then take what they're learning and, and to teach that to others and to learn some of the, the positives and the easy things and the fun things, but also some of the difficult things about it. And it was neat. The kids, man, in the car ride home, on the way here, even at night before we'd go to bed, be, we know our memory verse. And so I've heard John 14, 6, like 30 times this month from my kids. And so that's exciting, though, when your kids get that excited about the Word of God that they just want to keep telling you about it. And so uh, that is what has been happening downstairs. So you hopefully have a little bit more of a picture there. If um, We're going to switch gears now. And we're going to be in Psalm 94, so I encourage you to go ahead and have your Bibles turned to Psalm 94. We spent about six months in Galatians. We're spending now this month in the Psalms. Next week, we're going to kind of do a standalone sermon. We're going to talk about elders as we begin talking about elders and introducing the elders that we're going to be uh, nominating for the 2018 And then, beginning the second week in Luke, we are going to finish our series in Luke that we have begun several years ago, and we will go through uh, the book of Luke throughout the rest of uh, the year with only a few breaks uh, for a few certain things. Uh, But if you have your Bibles, I'll encourage you to go ahead and stand as we read Psalm 94. We stand here when we read God's Word because we believe it comes uh, with the full inspiration and authority of God, and so we do so to honor God. Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked... How long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. They are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Let's pray as we look at this psalm. Father, you are a holy, holy, awesome God. And as we come to you now through your word, and we look upon you, how you have revealed yourself to us, Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would illuminate the truths of your word. God, help us in our understanding. 
shine forth, Lord, that we might see you and see you in all of your glory and all of your beauty, that your word would become beautiful to us, that we would taste it and we would see it and it would be good to us. Lord, be with us now as we study your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may have a seat. The title today is The Hope in the Midst of Chaos. And one thing we see as Christians, we have hope because our God is the righteous judge who will not let the wicked prevail. And that's what we're going to see in this psalm. And so I want to begin, let's just walk through the flow and the structure of this psalm. Verses 1 and 2 are a call for God, the judge of the earth, to rise up and bring judgment on the wicked. We see that clearly, and then in verses 3 through 7, we understand the psalmist is crying out, we understand why the psalmist is crying out for judgment. In verse 3, the wicked appear to be exalted, life is going fine for them, but the righteous are being persecuted. Verse 5, God's people are being crushed. Verse 6, we see the widow, the sojourner, the fatherless, the orphan, they're being taken advantage of and killed. Wickedness seems to be ruling the day. Verse 7, we see the arrogance of the wicked. They say the Lord does not see. And remember, when we come into the Psalms, there's parallelism, which means the second line is not just going to repeat, but it's going to help give further understanding to the previous line. So it says the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. It clarifies who is this Lord that, that does not see or that they say does not see. They're referring to Yahweh, the God of Israel. In verses 8 through 11, then there is a warning that given to the wicked. He writes, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? Or translation, you stupid, stupid people. Here the psalmist shows how stupid it is to think that God does not see or hear or know what is happening. After all, he's the one who created the ears, created the eyes. In Colossians chapter 2, we're told that Jesus is the treasure chest of all knowledge. In verses 12 through 15, we see the confidence of the happy man. And that's where we're going to come. We're going to come back to that because that's the key part of this psalm. Verses 16 through 19, we see that the psalmist recounts a time when God saved him. In verses 20 through 23, we see that God is the righteous judge who will crush the wicked. He will rise up. He will repay the proud. Verse 23 we read, He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. So the Psalms, they're about how we live as God's people in God's creation under God's rule it's it's the whole point of the psalms how do we live as god's people now the book of psalms is broken up into five books echoing the fact that the old testament opens up with five books the pentateuch genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy those are the foundation books of the bible and then the psalms are broken up into five books as they help us understand what it is to live as god's people and one thing that we see as we go into books four and five which begin in psalm 90 it appears that something has gone wrong the rule of god his reign does not seem to be evident It's not obvious. It doesn't look like he's on his throne. And so one thing the psalm teaches us is how do we live as God's people when it doesn't look like God is ruling? Or to say it this way, how do we live as God's people when the wicked are exalted? 
And I, I think this is practical today. I mean, is this not a struggle that so often we experience today? Is this not what is often talked about at work, wherever you're at? In this century, there have been more Christians killed in this century alone than in all previous centuries combined. Did you know that? There is a North Korean dictator that seems too happy to start a nuclear war. ISIS continues to cause uh, terrorist attacks. We saw in Barcelona about a week ago. The political sphere of America has never been more polarized, and it appears that the racial tensions, especially here in America, are soaring at an incredible rate. There is a tolerance that's being taught in America that seems to accept every way of life except Christianity. In fact, Christians who stand up for the faith are often called bigots and radicals. There are false gospels popping up everywhere like in a garden unattended. Mothers with Down syndrome babies are being encouraged to abort their children. I mean, this is, this is our world. There's wickedness wherever you're at. When you turn on Fox, CNN, you pick your newscast, there's wickedness going on. And we just see evil. And, and then there's just destruction that happens like we see right now with the Hurricane Harvey. And so what do we do? How do we respond? After all, when we watch the news, does not despair climb into our soul darkening any chance of hope you ever feel like that you're just kind of like what do i do or do you, do you talk to people that that's that's how they sound there's no hope this psalm says that there's hope the psalmist is approaching world and he's seeing something as if there is hope in the midst of the seeming triumph of evil, this psalmist, he has confidence in God. He's not doubting God's rule. He knows that God is not teamed up with evil, verse 20. He knows that God will wipe out the wicked, verse 23. Now, he is weary of evil, right? He's weary. He does say, how long, for, how long will it be until God intervenes? He says, how long shall the wicked exult? But that's not a cry of despair, He's not doubting God. He's saying it's a long day. You ever have a long day? You just can't wait for it to be over? The psalmist, he's in a season, and it's a long day. And he's crying out, how long? He's not doubting. He's still coming to God as the one who rules. But he's saying, God, this is a long day. To this is not a cry of despair. After all, this is the very same cry that the saints who have been martyred they echo this in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is the very echo that saints who have now behold God in eternity are now crying out to him as they're in the heavens. So to long for the day of the Lord is not a lack of faith, or a cry of despair, rather it is an act of faith. Now, notice how the psalmist is described. Let's go to verse 12. Blessed is the man. He's blessed. This is the same word that we looked at last week in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man who has experienced the forgiveness of God. It's the very same word that starts out the Psalms, where we read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked, but who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. This is the happy person. This is the one who recognizes God's rule. So how? How is the psalmist described as happy in a time marked with 
so much evil. What does he know? Anyone remember the movie Matrix? Some of you, it was quite popular. Some of you might remember that. This will be a refreshment to that movie. If you do not know this, Wikipedia is there for you. Uh, The first movie, Morpheus, he presents two pills to Neo. Remember this? He presents a blue pill and a red pill. If Neo will take the blue pill, he will go back to sleep and he will become a slave to uh, the machines, never knowing what life truly is. But if he takes the red pill, he will wake up and he will come to an incredible knowledge and see the reality for what it really is. It appears that the psalmist has taken the red pill. He seems to know something that others do not. He knows something. He sees something that others often miss. And so the question is, how has he gained this knowledge? Like, how has he taken this red pill? What has come about? And so we look at verse 12, and it says, Blessed is the man, but why is he blessed? And it tells us two things. Number one, he has experienced the discipline of God. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. Now, the discipline here most likely does not refer to discipline that would come as a consequence of sin, although it might include that, but it most likely is referring to discipline of a hard life. Throughout the Bible, we see that, God, that God's discipline is highly praised. Just as a father, if you're a parent here, you know that discipline is good. Our children don't like it. One day, they will begin to appreciate it, hopefully. And as we begin to understand God and through his word, we see the beauty of his discipline. This is why we read things like this in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. In Job 5, 17, behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. God often brings discipline or difficulty into our lives as a meaning of refining us. He uses discipline as a way of exposing idols that we, may, that we might be trusting in. He does this so we would turn away from the idols and that we would trust fully in his strength. Or sometimes he brings discipline into our life as a way of preparing us for the future trials or things that he will bring into our life, which if you look at verse 18, it appears that this is something that has happened here. He says, when I thought my foot slips, so he's coming to despair. It looks like he's going to slip. It looks like the judgment is going to come upon him. It looks like the wicked will triumph over him. And it looks like he's going to slip and be taken away. And all of a sudden, God reaches down and grabs him. So now the psalmist realizes his weakness. And then he realizes, what do we read? Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. So the discipline It exposed the weakness of the psalmist and the strength and the steadfast love of the Lord. So that now, at a time like he's in right now, a long season, he's able to continue to come to God where he's trusting in God at this moment. So God often will bring discipline in order for us to see him and, and trust in him and to experience his love and his strength. Many of you, you've experienced this. And you know that we don't necessarily long for the discipline. We don't necessarily long for those trials that he brings us through. But many of you, you know that when we get through the trials, we see, we see the joy that's on the other side. And we wouldn't necessarily want to go through it again, but we're thankful for what God has taught us 
and what he has made us to be now that we have gone through. As God's children, the presence of discipline does not indicate God's absence, but rather it shows us his love. Look, if if you're a Christian and you're in a difficult season right now, it's a long day for you. Do not think that God has left you. Rather, God's word is showing that he's acting as a father to you, that you would experience his steadfast love. But the only way we, this discipline will produce a harvest of righteousness in us if it is combined with the word of God. This is the second thing we see. Look at it. Go back to verse 12. Blessed is a man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Discipline is good, but think of it like this. It's the bitter cold that drives us to the heat of God's word. Does that make sense? It's Discipline reveals our weakness. It shows us the coldness that we would then be driven to the word of God where we'd experience the heat of God's love and his comfort that we would then properly understand and see the world that we are in. And so the second thing we see here is that the psalmist has not only been disciplined by God, but he's now been taught the word of God. Now what does this mean, that he's been taught the word of God? Is it that he knows a lot of facts Is it that he's able to win Bible trivia? Is he able to answer questions? Like, what is the word that the Gileadites made the people say to understand if they were from Ephraim or not? In Judges 12, do you remember that word? Shebeleth? Of course, that was on the tip of your tongue, right? Is that why we read God's word? I mean, it's fun to kind of know those facts. You can go read that later and why Judges 12 will tell you. But when we open up God's word, we're not just seeing black and white, or if you've got red letter editions, black, white, and red. We're not just seeing colors. When we open up God's word, we encounter God. We're reading the fully authoritative and inspired word of the Most High God. That's what we have right here. So as we hold this, we encounter God every time we open up this Bible. We see God, how he has revealed himself to us. In the Bible, we come face to face with the Creator and our Savior and Redeemer. It's in the Bible we see the glory of God. This is why when you're in the Psalms, you read these beautiful things about God's Word. Let me read a little bit. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. I encourage you to read read the whole Psalm later. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb moreover by them is your servant warned and keeping them there is a great reward you see he has this love language for the word psalm 119 verse 97 longest psalm in the the psalms and it's the longest chapter in the entire bible and it's almost in the center of the bible and it's all a love language it's all love language about the word of god Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Verse 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. 
You ever, you ever think about the word of God like this? The reason the psalmist, he speaks so passionately and magnificently about the word of God is because in the word, he encounters God. The knowledge of God is what makes our souls shout in praise and it also gives us rest in times of difficulty. And that's what we see here in Psalm 94. The psalmist has seen God through being taught by the Word. The disciplines in his life has driven him to the heat of God's Word that he would know God. And in the psalm, we see at least three things about God. Number one, he's vengeful. He's the judge of all the earth. We see that clearly in verses 1 and 2. You also see that in verse 23 where God says he will wipe out all the wicked. We see that God is sovereign. Verses 8 through 11, they're a warning against the wicked. They're saying, you think God doesn't hear, see, or know what you're doing? That's ridiculous. He's the one who made the ears, made the eyes. He knows all things. In Proverbs, we see that all wisdom comes from God. And we see that God is faithful. Look at verse 14. We read, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will know it. He's seen these three characteristics of the glory of God, and now they're the very lens in which he looks at the world. And we could say, a lot of things about these. We could talk about how from Genesis, Genesis to Revelation, we see God's sovereign might, his limitless power. We could talk about his faithfulness to his people, his faithfulness to his word, his faithfulness to his own glory. But what I want to do is because the major theme of the psalm is on God as judge. So that's, that's what I want to look at is just, what does it mean that God is judge? And so we're just going to look at this psalm and, and see what we learn here. And to be clear, vengeance is not the same as revenge in case you're kind of wondering how those words relate to each other revenge is an act of passion vengeance is a judicial act it's the proper response or judgment given to those who have broken the law and so when we're saying oh lord god of vengeance we're not to think he's some passionately radical god who's just throwing a temper tantrum and responding to the earth but he responds in a very judicial way it's always the proper response to the crime and we see from Genesis to Revelation, we see judgment. In fact, I have a book, and it's titled Salvation Through Judgment. And what the author does is he begins from the beginning of the Bible and goes all the way through the Bible, and he shows that salvation only truly comes to us through the judgment of God. We see in the flood, we see the judgment of God. All of mankind has rebelled against God, and so what does he do? His vengeance is poured forth, and he floods the earth. We see it at the Tower of, ba Tower of Babel. What happens? All of humanity is, is gathered together rather than dispersing. They're going to become God themselves is what they think. And so what does God do? He brings judgment upon them, changes their language, and disperses them across the earth. We see judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are two Old Testament cities that are full of sexual morality, fornication, impurity, and every form of iniquity is present in these cities. And God brings fire down upon them. Again, we're always seeing these, these pictures of judgment which culminate as we move into the New Testament. We see them in God's judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Some of you might know this one. Verses 11 through 15, 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Judgment is this massive theme that runs from the beginning of God's word all the way to the very end of God's word. And the good news is is that because God is holy and righteous, his judgment is always perfect. There is never a mistrial. The innocent are never condemned, and the guilty never escape. The psalmist knows this. He understands that because God is holy and righteous, he must punish sin. This is why he's saying, how long? There is a day coming. The wicked might appear to be ruling But the time is coming when judgment will rise like the sun upon them, exposing their sinfulness and burning them up in wrath. This is why in verse 13, if you look, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from the days of trouble. The psalmist is blessed, and he has rest. Rest, the word means secure. Why is he secure? He knows that a pit is being dug for the wicked. And it's this knowledge, and it's this knowledge that God does, it's the knowledge that he has, that God sees all things, knows all things, hears all things, and therefore will bring judgment on the wicked. That's why his soul is at rest. He knows that the wicked will not continue to triumph. He knows that there's a day coming. You see, the psalmist has been shaped and transformed by the word of God. You've probably heard uh, of the saying, those who, those who you spend time with, you eventually become like. You ever heard something along those lines? If the person, let's say you don't curse, and all of a sudden you hang out with a lot of people who curse all the time, eventually you find yourself cursing. If you don't really, if you're not sarcastic and you don't really say racial jokes, but you hang out with people who are sarcastic and say racial jokes, eventually one day you find yourself being sarcastic and saying racial jokes, right? So what happens? You begin to Be like those who you surround yourself with. And a similar thing happens when we surround ourselves with God's word. When we immerse ourselves in God's word by faith, when we read the word of God and we understand God and we see his redemptive plan, we become more and more like God. We don't become God. We become like God. um, In 2 Corinthians, we read that we are made in the very image of God and we're transformed into his image degree by degree by degree. And what this means is that as we begin to be transformed and shaped by the word, we see the world with a divine perspective. Or to change analogies, God's word is like an anchor to our soul that keeps us from being tossed around by all the sin and chaos that surrounds us. Which means that when we watch CNN or Fox or pick your newscast, rather than being moved to anxiety, we're moved to prayer. Our soul is at rest as we long for his return. Let me ask you, do you have this rest? Are you experiencing this peace? You see, when we come to the New Testament, it shows us very clearly how we experience this peace. 
Because in the New Testament, we see the most awful and the most wonderful picture of God's judgment. It's the cross. That's where the most wonderful and awful picture is shown. Our sins are so incredibly offensive to God that there's no human way possible for you and I to atone for them. The only way possible is for God to send His Son as a human into this earth that He would be our substitutionary sacrifice. He would stand in your place and in my place and all for those who believe in Him. He would stand in their place and He would take the penalty, the judgment that you deserve, that I deserve, and He would bear it on the cross. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And that refers to the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Remember last week we talked about that great exchange? He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And now because of faith in Jesus Christ, all of the judgment that God has against us by faith in Jesus now, all of that judgment has been poured out upon the Son of God, so that now, for those who love Jesus, all He has is peace and love for them. There is no judgment, for it has been fully emptied upon Jesus. That's why His soul is at rest. Amen, indeed. He's innocent. He knows He stands before God. The, The wicked will be judged, but He knows, I have been made righteous by the blood of God, that now I can now run to God. Look at verse 22. He says, The Lord has become my stronghold and my God and the rock of my refuge. He's not fearful of God. He's not afraid of His judgment. He's not going, man, when this day comes, I don't know what's going to happen. But he now runs to God as the refuge, as the strong tower, as the Father who has His arms wide open to Him because He knows all the judgment of God has been poured out upon Jesus so that now He experiences the peace and the love of God. Let me ask you, is God your refuge? Is He your strong tower? If not, I encourage you to believe in Jesus Christ today. Experience that peace. Experience what it is to be this blessed man and have that rest in your soul. Now, if you are a Christian, you might ask, well, how do I experience God as my strong tower? How do I experience Him as my refuge? You might say, okay, I believe in Jesus, but I don't know that I run to Him like this. I'm still watching the news. I'm still seeing things, and I feel anxiety stirring within me. So how do we do it? Well, let's come back to the word. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. So again, discipline is the bitter cold that drives us to the heat of God's word that we'd be made well. We must come to God in his word it's in the word of god that we see him as our strong tower it's in the word of god that we see him as our refuge it's in the word of god that we see that god is our father and that all who have faith in him have been forgiven that we would enter into the presence of god it's in the word that we see god has never stepped off his throne he forever reigns in righteousness and that's what it is to live by faith so this whole idea what the psalmist is doing here is what we would say this is what it is to live by faith rather than looking at the world and then using the world as the means in which he defines god he looks at god through his word trusts in god in his promises and thus now looks at the world using the the word as the way of seeing the world does that make sense Rather than looking at the world to understand God, he looks, at the, he looks at God through the Bible 
to understand the world. Now, sometimes people might say, well, that's just illogical then. You have to start with what you see, but what we understand in God's word is when we come to God first, his wisdom will expose the wisdom of the world as foolish. Because only when we come to the word of God do we truly see the world with the divine perspective of God. We see it from his eyes as he sits on his throne. Listen, stories like David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, Joseph being sold into Egypt, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing the fiery furnace, Stephen being uh, stoned, Paul and Silas being thrown into prison. And there's countless other stories you can go to in the Bible. We read these stories and we go, wow, those are great stories, right? And then we stop and we walk away. And it's as if we have no idea how to apply that to our life. We think, wow, isn't that neat how God used them or God worked in them? I wish he did that to me. Or I wish he worked that way today. But what did these guys do? They simply believed in the God that they had read through the word. And that's how they lived. When you look at the story of David and Goliath, and David rushing towards Goliath. Don't you love that part? He runs towards Goliath. He does so not with anxiety, but full of peace and rest in his soul. Because he says, my God will give me victory. When Daniel goes to the lion's den, He has peace. He will not bow down before any other God. He will not pray to Darius. He only prays to the one true God, and therefore his soul is at rest. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stand before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, you will bow or you will go into the fire. They say, well, throw us in the fire. Our God can rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we will never, ever bow to you. How do these guys have any of this peace in their soul? It's through the word of God. They've been refined and strengthened and transformed and shaped by the Word. The very same Word that we now have before us today. In fact, we now have the New Testament. It's a much more clear picture even of God and how He saves than what they had in the Old Testament. And so when we come into the Word of God, we behold God. We're made into His image that his peace would become our peace, that his rest becomes our rest, that his strength becomes our strength so that we can stand in this world as a light in this world. Remember in Matthew chapter five, he says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. Why is the church to be a light? Because we have faith in God. Because we see the world for what it truly is. We've been made new by God. His spirit dwells in us that now we live in a very different way because we see everything through the divine perspective of God through his word. As Christians, never in scripture are we promised an easy life here on earth. But God does promise peace and rest, and it comes to us through Jesus Christ in his word. So let's join with the psalmist. Let's cry out, how long, O Lord? That is to be our cry, right? How long, O Lord, as we look at this world? And as we wait, we wait full of faith and peace, knowing that the sun of judgment is rising. That's the peace that we have. And so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite the men to come down, and they're going to help, and we're going to pass out the elements here this morning. Father, we come to you now. You are a God of judgment. And God, that is a fearful, fearful thing if there was no cross. 
But Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that, God, you have poured out your judgment upon your son, Jesus, so that all who believe in you were peace with you, were forgiven by you. You wrap your steadfast arms of love around us and embrace us. And God, I pray that we as a church, we would look at this world through the lens of your gospel. That we'd regularly be transformed by your word, be shaped by your word, that we would have a divine perspective on all things, whether they're on the news, whether they're in our family, whether they're in our own backyards, in our neighborhoods, but that we would see things, we would see people, we would see events through your word. And rather than being, being moved to anxiety, we'd be moved to prayer. We'd cry out, how long, O Lord? For we know there's a day coming. And we know that in the in-between time, as we wait, you provide rest, you provide peace, you provide strength. And God, we know that it is all grace that comes to us through your Son in your word. God, help us to be people of your word. May we know your word. May we love your word. May we carve out times every day for the priority of your word. Lord, we love you in your name, Jesus. Amen. it represents the body of Jesus. We had a discussion in my car this morning on why, why it's so important that he came as a human. Because it, it doesn't just represent the fact that his body was broken. It represents the fact that we had to have a perfect 
human substitutionary sacrifice to stand in our place. No goat would do, no bull would do, no sheep would do. That's why those things are all done away with when Christ comes. We had to have the perfect son, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place as our substitutionary sacrifice. So the bread not only represents the brokenness of Jesus, but it represents the fact that he came as a human so he could stand in your place, in my place, and for all those who believe in him, that God's wrath would be fully satisfied in the Son of God. So let's take the bread in remembrance of Jesus Christ. represents that Jesus was not just hurt, he was not just wounded, but he died. It had to be by his blood that we are forgiven. And so he went to the cross willingly, and Hebrews tells us, with joy he went, that he might take our sins and bear the penalty that we who believe in him would be made righteous, but only through the blood of Christ. So take the juice in remembrance of Jesus Christ. One question 
that was brought up is, are we to rejoice then in the judgment of God over those who do not believe in God? That's a good question. Um, there's a few verses that are swimming around in my head that I can't think of where they're from, so I, I don't feel like I can use them at this moment. Um, I, think, I think we see two things in the scripture. We grieve over the fact that there are people who do not believe in God. We grieve over there are so many people who resist the Spirit of God and who resist God's Word. I think, I think we grieve over that. We rejoice over the fact that our God will be glorified in all things. As judge, He is glorified. As Savior, He is glorified. There's nothing that thwarts His plans, um, but we do grieve over those who, who do reject God. We don't take delight in that. I don't think God takes delight in that, but yet He is glorified in all things. And so that's a good question, because uh, in the psalm, you could be led that way. Um, that's a good question. I'm going to pray, and then the team will lead us in closing. Our Father, we come to you. You're, you're the judge of the earth. You're sovereign in all ways. You're faithful to your word, to your name, and to your people. And God, may we rejoice in that. May we rejoice in you are not a small God. You are not a God that we can wrap our arms around and put in a box. You are a God that has revealed yourself to us in your word, and yet you are infinite. And so that all that we might know from you in your word, while it is glorious and it is amazing, there is so much more that we do not behold. And God, we thank you that you are holy and that you are righteous. And God, I thank you that we who are here whether we're in a long day right now, or whether we enter into that time, or whether that just characterizes the age in which we live, that it appears often that wickedness prevails. God, we know that you are judge. We know that you rule. We know that you are on your throne, and your son Jesus is at your right hand. And by faith in you, we are told that we also sit with you at your right hand. And God, may we know that, May that truth be an anchor into our soul, into our heart, and may it give us great joy, God. And may every day we go forth because of your word that we would shine as lights in this world, showing our neighbors, showing those whom we come into contact with your love, your peace, your rest. That regularly the people in our lives would have glimpses of you and would see the joy that you bring. God, help us to share the gospel. Give us great joy and delight and urgency in sharing the gospel that more and more people would taste your goodness, would see your goodness, and experience the joy of your son, Jesus Christ. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.